Good evening. Wisdom Eccentrics by Nakshan Rinpoche. Chapter 5. Then it struck me that Rinpoche looked like Errol Flynn. The similarity hit me. It was unmistakable. Rinpoche was, in my mind, one of those rare people whose face transcended his race. You'd have to be of another race to see it, so I can't find an English example. Muddy Waters was like that too. There are a whole range of blues artists you can see in photographs. Then you see Muddy Waters, and he has that certain attribute that places him outside the ordinary range of human beings. Be that as it may, I stood there, feeling as if I was suspended in mid-air and not knowing what to do. Then all hell broke loose. What does this idiot want? Kunzangdorje Rinpoche almost sighed. Chapter 5. The Idiot Savant Rinpoche is asking what does this idiot want? Pemadorje translated with evident discomfort. This is what Rinpoche is asking. Right, I was an idiot. I didn't know how to reply to that. Well, I did. I could have said, What does this idiot want? What do you think this goddamn idiot wants? This idiot wants what? All idiots want. This idiot wants to be told he's a jolly fine fellow. He wants to be told that his wishes will all be met because he's the most righteous dude who ever walked the goddamn hills. I would have thought that obvious, Rinpoche. With hindsight, that might have been worth a try for an idiot savant. However, I just fell to earth with a sickening emotional thud. I'd come all this way from Nepal for nothing. What would Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche say? How could I go back and tell him that I'd been thrown out as an idiot? It's not that I had some huge objection to being described as an idiot, but I'd not yet opened my mouth to be thus designated. I knew that whatever my qualities were as an artist, this was no exemption from idiocy when it came to the world of mind and the nature of mind. After the unreal royal reception I'd received at the Nyingma Gompa, this reduced me to my rightful size. It's not that I'd got bloated with spiritual dignity nouveau from dining with Kunchog Rinpoche. I had no false idea of myself, or no falser than the average 1960s upstart. I was inordinately happy with my situation at the Nyingma Gompa, and had foolishly taken that as some kind of good sign. I'd later be accused of eternalism for that kind of view. But Rinpoche had yet to start in on me and my mess of a mind. Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche told me 
that I should study Dzogchen Menak Day with you. And this, this is his letter. And it, he explains, I ran dry. Poor Pemadorje translated my fumbled mumblings as best he could and probably made me more coherent than I was. Rinpoche sat like a mountain. I knew it was possible to sit still, but there was something about his utter motionlessness that was dramatic in the same way that the Grand Canyon is dramatic. I read an account of someone's travels in the USA in which the author is standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. It's befogged. Nothing can be seen. Suddenly the fog clears and a score of people exclaim, Jesus, more or less at the same time. Rinpoche is the only human being who's ever had that impact on me. I didn't hiss Jesus with a sharp intake of breath, but the effect was not entirely unlike vertigo. Vaguely stunned by Rinpoche's presence, I placed the letter on his table. He didn't move. His eyes were fixed on me, but his eyes were impassive. I wasn't being scrutinised. It was more that he held me in his wider field of vision. It was as if I were a rock or a tree in the landscape that was begging to be noticed, and he wasn't even ignoring me. I was merely there. Then followed the unlikeliest pantomime I've ever witnessed. Rinpoche picked up the letter with great care. It was valuable. It had come from Dujam Rinpoche. He opened the letter, again with great care. He then took a great deal of time to read it, and I found myself wondering whether he could read. I knew that some amazing yogis were illiterate, and so I found myself wondering whether Pemadorje should read the letter out loud. As this vile thought passed through my mind, like faeces in an open sewer, Rinpoche looked up at me and smiled. It was an eerie smile, the smile of extreme censure, the smile of the prosecuting barrister having caught the defendant in an evident fabrication, the smile which anticipates the judge placing the black cap on his head and sentencing the prisoner at the bar to death. Actually, it was nothing of the sort, but it was a look I'd never witnessed before. It stopped me in mid-thought. I felt myself about to faint. I willed myself to regain average consciousness. After several centuries, he returned his gaze to the letter. Having read it, he turned it over. He looked at the back. The reverse of the letter was blank, but he gazed at it for several moments as if there were a hidden cipher that might reveal itself if he stared long enough. 
When the reverse of the letter remained obdurately blank, he made a clucking noise that seemed to suggest something that wasn't entirely positive. Rinpoche then folded the letter with great care and replaced it in the envelope. He then slid the letter slowly inside his tuba. Having done this, he opened his mouth wide and rubbed his chin with his thumb and index finger. He looked around the room, as if in search of something. After a while, he looked out of the window. I wondered if he was expecting another guest. Maybe I'd arrived at an unfortunate juncture. I thought of asking, Maybe Rinpoche is busy? Maybe I should come back another time? But thought better of it. That might sound discourteous, as if I were impatient. After some time had elapsed, Rinpoche looked at me with what appeared to be a slight sneer, although I wasn't quite sure if that is what I'd seen. The movement of his mouth was too brief. He reached into his tuba and slowly pulled out the letter. He opened it. He read it again. Again, having carefully read the letter, he turned the letter over and examined the reverse side of the sheet of paper. As before, he saw nothing there and simply gazed at it for a while. Then he refolded the letter, replaced it within the envelope and slid it slowly into his tuba. Then another phase of pantomime began. Rinpoche began looking around the room, but this time languidly. He'd remain motionless, looking at what appeared to be undifferentiated points on the ceiling. Then he sat back and yawned. After a moment or two, he said, Oh, yeah, and returned to looking out of the window. Pemadorje said nothing. I figured that there was nothing too unusual about what was happening, so I might as well sit it out. After what seemed an uncomfortable period of time, I began to be plagued by concepts. Should I ask Pemadorje whether our departure was required? Should we leave? Somehow I didn't feel at ease about giving voice to such an idea. When Rinpoche had looked out of the window for some ten minutes, he turned his attention to the letter again. He reached into his tuba and pulled out the letter, opened it and read it again. Yet again, having carefully read the letter, he turned the letter over and scrutinised the back. As before, he saw nothing there. This time, however, he placed the letter on the table in front of him. Then he shook his head, as if to say that he'd tried to get rid of me by all means possible, but somehow I was still there. 
There was something that moved in his gaze that looked decisive, and he exclaimed, Yah, yah, yah. Maybe you come back tomorrow. He then turned his head to look through the window. I felt a tug at my elbow and found myself being led backward through the door by Pemadorje. Left to my own devices, I would probably have floated there in some kind of trance until Rinpoche had to call someone to have me removed. Suddenly, and somehow unexpectedly, I found myself outside on a clear, sunny afternoon. When we were at what felt to be a discreet distance from Rinpoche's residence, I asked, Pema Dorje, do you know Rinpoche very well? Pema Dorje looked puzzled. No, Rinpoche, sir, he is a very great Salung master. He is not someone I could know. I pondered and tried again. But you know about him? Oh yes, Rinpoche, sir. Everyone knows Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche. In some places he is known as Karma Gyalpo Rinpoche. In Sikkim they call him the Flying Lama. He does not live here all the time. He does not live anywhere all the time. He stays in different places and no one knows when he will come or go. What does he do when he comes here to Sogpema? I inquired. Does he teach? No, Rinpoche, sir. Pema Dorje, I hope you won't mind my asking, but would you mind calling me Chogyam rather than Rinpoche, sir? Yes, sir, Pema Dorje laughed a little nervously. So if Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche doesn't teach, does he have no students? Oh yes, he has students, but they are not many and no inges. When Rinpoche is in Sopema, some personal students come to see him privately. He comes often at the time of Guru Rinpoche's birth, when we are having Garcham, and then he is presiding in the dance as Guru Rinpoche. I can imagine Rinpoche is a wonderful dancer, I blurted out. Ah, no, Pemadorje laughed. Rinpoche does not dance. Rinpoche sits as Guru Rinpoche, so that the Garcham will be perfect. So, I ventured, returning to what was most prominent in my mind, Rinpoche is always as he was today, or do you think he doesn't like me? Pemadorje smiled. He is like this, but he paused, rubbing his head with his hand as if to help him in his explanation. He is a most wrathful lama, but I cannot say that he does not like you. No, he will see you tomorrow, so that is good. That is very good. Pemadorje smiled and nodded with pleasure as he said these last words, but I was far from reassured. I wondered, if my reception had been very good, what slightly untoward would be, or even not so good? As to bad, I'd have had to have been dragged out feet first.
Later that afternoon, we walked around the lake with Kunchog Rinpoche. The difference was palpable. Kunchog Rinpoche was all affability and ease. He evidently liked me. It flitted through my mind that I might be better placed studying with him. After all, Kunchog Rinpoche was a renowned Dorje Trullo practitioner who was undoubtedly highly conversant with Dzogchen. Then it occurred to me, fairly rapidly, that Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche would have sent me to Kunchog Rinpoche if he thought I should study with him. It was not to be, and I decided to think myself grateful that I'd be able to spend some time under Kunchog Rinpoche's benign influence. As we walked round the lake, a stream of Tibetans approached Kunchog Rinpoche and he gave each supplicant a touch on the head in token of blessing. They then approached me, and I affected a gesture of it not being appropriate in my case to offer blessings. When Kunchog Rinpoche saw this, he nodded vigorously and gesticulated to the effect that I was to bless the people. Then followed a queasy ritual that I was glad to have done with when the circumambulation of the lake was concluded. It was a highly peculiar situation. The difference between being with Kunchog Rinpoche and Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche was like good cop, bad cop, and the stress that this produced made me a little uneasy. Had they planned this together? No. Surely not. I couldn't believe that. No one had been informed as to my arrival in Tsopema and so nothing so diabolical could have been arranged in advance. I'd have opted for some kind of middle ground between total acceptance and being viewed with utter contempt. The next day we were back outside Rinpoche's door again. I was feeling a sense of dread about what was to follow, but held it in check with sensible notions to the effect that Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche would not have sent me here if here were not where I should be. Dujum Rinpoche knew me, and he knew what I needed better than I did, so any anxiety I was feeling was down to some kind of infantilism that needed a valsing. Emma Dorje and I were duly ushered in. We offered prostrations and took our seats. Oh, yeah, Rinpoche began, shaking his head in what seemed to indicate dissatisfaction. So, you have come back again. I do not know why. I couldn't think of a response to that other than well, Rinpoche, I've come to learn Zogchen Menak Day from you because that was Dujum Rinpoche's advice to me. But he already knew that, and I sensed that repeating this would seem like some kind of obdurate petulance on my part. And so, Rinpoche announced, what is it that you do not understand? Tell me what you do not understand. I don't understand Zogchen Menak Day, Rinpoche. You don't know Zogchen Menak Day. You don't know Zogchen Menak Day either to 
understand it or not understand it, Rinpoche shouted. I didn't ask what you do not know. I asked you what you do not understand. The main thing I didn't understand was impossible to express. I don't know why Kavje Dujan Rinpoche sent me to you. But that seemed a highly impertinent answer and I could not bring myself to say that. I didn't understand my own life narrative. It had gone haywire. The idea of life as a story that could be understood had always been at the back of my mind. That's not in terms of destiny or predestination or anything of that nature. I just liked to have a picture that made some kind of sense. I wasn't on the lookout for everything to be meaningful, but I wanted to know that I was going in a creative direction of some sort. As elements of this idea flickered in my mind, one of the stories of Tsar Paltrow Rinpoche edged into view and adventitiously gave me something to ask. Rinpoche, I began, just on the cusp of his patience wearing thin, there is a story about Tsar Paltrow Rinpoche that I don't understand. It was a story about offering unnecessary prostrations. This will be the first story in this book. I won't summarise it here, but anyhow, I was confused by Paltrow's motivation. His behaviour seems out of character for a realised master. Rinpoche laughed. Ha! Tom Yore! Then suddenly and with great force he yelled, You think you are better than Paltrow? It was almost as if I'd been whacked round the head with a length of two by four. No, Rinpoche, I squeaked, but I cannot understand why he does what he does. You understand nothing, Rinpoche shouted. What do you know of Paltrow to understand or not understand? Rinpoche demanded at slightly less volume. It was unnerving to be shouted at in this manner and difficult for me to keep any kind of concentration on the discussion. I know very little, Rinpoche, apart from a few stories I heard from... Rinpoche interrupted at this point. Ha! Never mind about all that. Every Tom Yore tells these stories. Almost no one understands them. Better you go now. Maybe come back tomorrow. Maybe I will speak of Paltrow. Maybe not. Rinpoche sat in silence for a while, glaring at me, then yelled, You have nothing to say? Thank you very much indeed, Rinpoche. I would like to learn about Tsar Paltrow. Rinpoche yawned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe there is something to tell of Paltrow that you need to know. Because you are a Tomyor and know nothing. Maybe 
you can understand. Maybe not. But Dujjam Rinpoche says you need teachings on Zogchen Menakde. Yes, Rinpoche. Ha! Tom Yor, why you agree with me? Kunzang Dorje did not ask you to agree. By this time, Rinpoche observed that he had practically plastered me into the wall, and this seemed to ameliorate the situation slightly. Yeah, 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 maybe. Maybe too difficult for you. First, Rinpoche yelled, you need to understand what is meant by principle and function. You know what that means? Yes, Rinpoche. Wrong! No, you do not know, he barked, let out a huge sigh. Tomyo, 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 you do not know anything. If you knew principle and function, you would understand this story of Paltrel. If you are ever to receive teaching on Tsogchen, you will need a clear mind. If you cannot understand Paltrel, you will not understand Zogchen. Rinpoche shook his head slowly from side to side in a manner which seemed to indicate doubt that I'd ever understand anything. We will have to see if this is possible. It may not be possible. You can go now. Thank you, Rinpoche. What for? he shouted. And then shaking his head, he said, Kema, Tomyo. I sat, vaguely stupefied for a moment, but I'd been asked a question and felt that unless I answered, I'd be given up as a lost cause. I was thanking you for agreeing to teach me, Rinpoche. No, I have not agreed to teach you anything. Not yet. He grinned ever so slightly. So, what do you say now? Thank you for letting me come back, Rinpoche. Rinpoche shook his head from side to side. Tomyo. Maybe. Maybe not. We'll see. Now go. That seemed a good point to leave as requested. Kale Jutenjago, I offered politely, and backed out of the door. Hot damn, I was in with a chance. Once back on the track to the Nyingma Gompa and out of earshot, Pema Dorje said, This is too good. Rinpoche will teach you now. He is very, very, very wrathful. He does not like to take students. He has only few students. You are too lucky. Lucky, yes, I was lucky. But it felt like the kind of luck that consisted of being told, although you're falling to your death at the moment, the altimeter is faulty and you'll have another full five seconds before you hit the ground. I returned the next day and the rest is history the history of the stories in this book, along with the interrogatory conversations 
which followed them.